I'm ready when you are, so. Good morning, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us for our online service here at City Church. If you're new, my name's Jay. I'm the director of worship. We begin each of our Sunday services hearing from God's word to prepare our hearts to sing together and to hear from his word. And so this morning, I'm going to read a passage from Psalm 33. Uh, I'm going to read the first few verses, and then I'm going to skip to the end and read the last few verses. So listen to Psalm 33. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. And this is the ending. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. Would you join me in prayer? O gracious Father, help us this day. Help us to give thanks to you with our voices and with these instruments. We ask for your blessing over this time. Please, God, please make your presence known to us this morning. You, our help and our shield. Give us the spiritual eyes to see and understand all that you are doing in our lives. May our hearts be glad in you for what you have done for us in Jesus Christ. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you this morning. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's sing, uh, let's sing together. Set your rule and reign in our hearts again. Increase in us, we pray. Unveil why we're made. Come set our hearts ablaze with hope, like wildfire in our very souls. Holy Spirit, come invade us now. Build your kingdom here today. 
City Church family, it's great to be with you. My name is Chipper. I'm one of the pastors here at City Church. We are a church aspiring to be an authentic community walking with God in our city. We would love to pray for you this week. Please consider going uh, to our website, citychurchgmv.com connection, filling out a connection card uh, virtually. Um, put your prayer requests on there. Let us know who you are, especially if you've been watching for a while online um, and we haven't been able to meet you yet. We love getting to know people, hearing from you. And I hope we can meet in person one day. That would be delightful. We worship a generous God. Part of our responsive worship as the people of God is giving generously. You can give online, citychurchgnv.com slash give, or you can come to an in-person service. Uh, right now we're meeting outside at First Magnitude, uh, 9 a.m. and 1045 a.m. Um, every Sunday. Well, at least for the rest of May, that is, outside at First Magnitude. So 9 and 1045 a.m. We have kids programming at 9 a.m., and then again, a second service at 1045. And then starting in June, actually, Lord willing, we will be back in our sanctuary, where I am right now, um, at 9 and 11 a.m. So our service times will be slightly different, but essentially the same. So rest of May, 9 and 1045 a.m., uh, and then June, Lord willing, we will be back inside, and we will have our services at 9 and 11 a.m., and initially our children's programming will just be during the 9 a.m. service. A couple more weeks of community groups before they go on a break, um, like a six to eight week summer break of sorts so our leaders can reset and rest, but there's still time to get involved. So citychurchgmv.com slash CG or fill out a connection card. We will connect you. We will help you uh, get to know our leaders, make sure that you feel welcomed and all of that's a great way to get to know people, to pray together, to serve together, to uh, take seriously what we're preaching through on Sunday mornings and apply it to the rhythms of everyday life. So I would highly recommend that. And then tomorrow... Uh, we continue our four-week civic engagement class tomorrow night, so that's Monday night. Um, that would be, I guess, the 17th. Monday the 17th at 7 o'clock until 8.45 in our sanctuary, week three or four for our civic engagement class. Uh, and we are going to be talking about actually political engagement, how our faith in Jesus 
uh, informs the way that we're engaged politically, especially in local politics, actually. Uh, one of our interns, Tyler Jacobs, will be leading that session. Our interns have been doing an amazing job with this. Not too late to participate at 7 o'clock tomorrow, 17, 7 o'clock, um, in the sanctuary. So uh, we'd love to see you there. We are beginning a new sermon series in the book, well, books, I should say, of Ezra and Nehemiah. So we've just been doing a series in the book of James that we started in January. We just wrapped it up last week, and now we're in a new series. We're in Ezra and Nehemiah, um, specifically this week, Ezra uh, chapters 1 and 2. This will take us, for the most part, through the end of the summer, and you'll see why in just a few moments why we are in this series. So if you have a Bible, if you have a phone, I'll pull those out, follow along with us. Even though we'll be covering Ezra chapters 1 and 2 today, I'm only going to read for now Ezra chapter 1. Ezra chapter 1, starting in verse 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you, of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is a God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor, in whatever place he sojourns, be assisted by the men of his place, with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides free will offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred up, to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, with costly wares, besides all that was freely offered. Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. Cyrus, king of Persia, brought these out in the charge of Mithridath, the treasurer, who, could, who counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. And this was a number of them, 30 basins of gold, 1,000 basins of silver, 29 censers, 30 bowls of gold, 410 bowls of silver, and 1,000 other vessels. All the vessels of gold and silver were 5,400. All these did Sheshbazar bring up when the exiles were brought up from Babylonia to Jerusalem. Let's pray together. Lord, brand new series. Uh, in, in books that I think a lot of people may not be particularly familiar with, and so we ask for just an extravagant work of your spirit to, to make this text come alive, to help us understand even the context of these books rightly. And I pray that we would be a transformed people. As we'll see, these books are so timely for us. Thank you for preserving them uh, for this long, that we might benefit from them as your people. We love you, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you know, studying the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, I think it feels kind of indie, you know? It feels like going to the Sundance Film Festival to watch really obscure documentaries, mainly so you can just recommend them on Twitter and feel that rush of bohemian sophistication. You know, oh, you're watching Titanic for the 25th time. Well, I've just been watching the Symphony 
of the Ursus factory. You know, Polish documentarians, they are so underrated. You know, oh, you've been studying the book of Romans. Well, we've been studying Ezra and Nehemiah. You know, post-exilic narratives are so underrated. But even though this new series might feel kind of, kind of indie, that's really not the point. As is the case with every sermon series here at City Church, this series in Ezra and Nehemiah is prayerfully intended to spiritually nourish and equip you to equip us as we navigate pressing personal and cultural issues. We don't make sermon series decisions in a vacuum. They are intended to address things happening in your lives and in our society right now. Plus, I got to tell you, there's nothing indie about me unless you think the Gap and J. Crew are indie. So why these particular books? Why these particular books? Why Ezra and Nehemiah? Number one, Christians in our church family and across the nation are feeling increasingly uncomfortable, dislocated, and discouraged. And accordingly, many of them would say that they're losing their sense of identity and mission and belonging. Now, who are we again? What are we even doing out here? What is our faith even about? These issues predated 2020, let me tell you. But the trinity of COVID and race injustice and the presidential election certainly caused an escalation. Plus, we've seen the news stories about declining church membership. Gallup just reported that for the first time in the 80-year history of their polling, less than 50% of Americans belong to a house of worship. And we've seen high-profile stories of various moral failures and abuse among spiritual leaders. I could go on and on and on. You get the point. There are significant feelings of discomfort and dislocation and discouragement. Number two, second reason for studying these particular books. There is this yearning among these Christians, I'm talking about us and, and nationally, to recapture things that we believe have been lost. And some believe that this means recreating the past, any of a host of spiritual practices or traditions or institutions. Others believe that this means pressing forward into an entirely new era, you know, a Christianity 2.0 for our contemporary age that maybe it's, maybe it's aware of the past, but it's more evolved, it's more innovative, it's more diverse, etc. These approaches sound different on the surface, but they're both really after the same goal, the end of discomfort and dislocation and discouragement. No one wants to just feel unmoored and adrift. And both approaches can and do commandeer means such as political engagement and education and marketing and so forth. Well, guess what? The books of Ezra and Nehemiah zoom in on the people of God, namely the Israelites, in an age in which they were feeling, get ready for this, uncomfortable, dislocated, and very discouraged. So the value in studying the books of Ezra and Nehemiah right now is this. They end up teaching us quite a lot about God's character and mission in the midst of our 
discomfort and dislocation and discouragement. Plus, they teach us quite a lot about what faithfulness and obedience should look like on our end when we're experiencing discomfort and dislocation and discouragement. Those are exactly the things that we need to learn in our present moment. So let's jump right in and let God's word do the powerful thing that it does. And by the way, although Ezra and Nehemiah are presented as two books in our Bibles, they're actually one literary unit. In fact, the two books are presented as one book in the Hebrew Scriptures, and that book is simply called Ezra. One inaugural reflection this morning as we begin to explore this Ezra-Nehemiah narrative. And that reflection is simply this. God keeps his promises. He keeps his promises. And within that, we're going to see what that meant for the Israelites and now what that means for us. So I kid you not, this is a one-point sermon. For some of you, this is a dream come true. Let's get on with it. God keeps his promises. What does that mean for the Israelites? What does that mean for us? We've got to do some history. We've got to do some history. Earlier I mentioned that the Israelites we encounter in Ezra and Nehemiah were feeling very uncomfortable and dislocated and discouraged. But this dislocation was far more than a feeling. Most of them had been physically expelled from their true home, the promised land, notably including Jerusalem, into exile in Babylon. So remember that they had gained the promised land after the Lord led them, led them out of Egypt, where they had been enslaved. This is the exodus. They, then they gained the promised land. But eventually they were exiled into Babylon, which is where Ezra chapter 1 picks up. Technically, their adversaries, the Babylonians, led by King Nebuchadnezzar, attacked the Israelites and eventually took them captive. But all of this was actually ordained by the Lord as discipline for Israel's idolatrous and unjust behaviors. You can read all about these behaviors in the prophets, and I would specifically point you to the prophet Jeremiah. This this poor guy spent basically his whole life calling out the Israelites in Judah for their misbehavior, and warning them about the pending consequences, but nobody would listen. In fact, the Israelites mistreated Jeremiah and instead listened to false prophets who kept telling them that everything was fine and the favor of the Lord was upon them, even though that was certainly not the case. So in 605 B.C., King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians invaded Israel, specifically the southern king, kingdom of Judah, and laid siege to Jerusalem. And then in 586 BC, they destroyed Jerusalem, essentially, including the spectacular temple that King Solomon had built. Between the siege of Jerusalem in 605 BC and the destruction of Jerusalem in 586 BC, various waves of Israelite exiles were taken into captivity in Babylon, where they lived for approximately 70 years, depending on how you count. Daniel, as in the dude that ended up with the lions, he was taken in the first wave. 
One more round of musical chairs, and then I promise we're basically done with dates and kings for today. In 539 B.C., the Persians, led by King Cyrus the Great, defeated the Babylonians and therefore assimilated Babylonian lands, which at this point included the northern kingdom of Israel and, and also the southern kingdom of Judah. They, they assimilated those lands into their rapidly growing Persian empire. I'll post some maps online to help you make sense of this geographically. That was 539 B.C. And then basically one year later, in 538 B.C., King Cyrus made a rather stunning decision, which finally and mercifully brings us to Ezra chapter 1, verses 1-4. through 4. Check this out. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it into writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all of his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is a God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor, in whatever place he sojourns, be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. So you know why this is stunning. You already can tell why this is stunning. Kings and emperors and rulers, etc., don't typically let their captives go, especially not back to their ancestral lands so that they can rebuild. Most kings would consider that kind of return and rebuild to be a threat. Not very good empire management strategy. In this case, it's possible that King Cyrus had some personal and administrative motivations that we might get to later in this series. But verse 1 makes the main explanation for Cyrus's declaration very clear. Here's why it was happening. The Lord prompted. You see this? The Lord prompted King Cyrus to make this declaration so that the word of the Lord, spoken through the prophet Jeremiah, might be fulfilled. Or to put things very plainly here, the Lord had promises to keep, and the Lord is a promise-keeping God. That's who he is. That's his nature. What promises or what word are we talking about here? We're talking about the promise made to the Israelites in Jeremiah 25 that eventually the Lord would punish the Babylonians for their oppression of the Israelites. Check. Thank you, Persians. And we're talking about the promise made to the Israelites in Jeremiah 29. See also Jeremiah 31 and 32, that he would protect the Israelites in exile and eventually bring them back. Check, sort of. Thank you, King Cyrus. And we'll have a lot more to say about that, sort of, as we make our way through this series. And now I'm going to start to preach a little bit. Church. It is so important to notice 
that as the Lord made good on these promises, He was remarkably generous to His people beyond simply bringing them back. Do you see this? He wasn't doing the bare minimum here. Verse 2, He charged King Cyrus to have the exiles prioritize the house at Jerusalem, that is, the temple, upon their return. And that was a huge deal since the Jerusalem temple was supposed to be the center of Jewish religious life and worship. Plus, God prompted Cyrus to supply the exiles with materials for that rebuild, gold and silver and other goods and animals, including materials from very unexpected and I would say very encouraging sources. Some of these materials, and you see this in in verse 6 and uh, verse 4, came from the non-Jewish neighbors of these exiles. From their neighbors. And some of the materials, and you can see this in verses 7 through 11, were the materials and vessels that that the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar had stolen you know, 60 or so years ago from the original temple. So apparently God didn't just protect and preserve his people. He also protected and preserved a whole lot of their sacred vessels and materials. So side note here, that might help you understand the reason for the very specific numbers that we find in verses 9 through 11. Why in the world do we care? that the vessels of gold and silver were 5,400. Why do we care about that? And here's why. Because every single one of those vessels, those basins and the bowls and the censers, is a testimony to God's overwhelmingly generous, faithful, promise-keeping character. Every one of them. The Israelites deserved zero vessels. But God quite miraculously preserved 5,400 vessels from their own temple because that's the kind of gracious and merciful God He is. I bet you you didn't think that bowls and basins could preach like this now, did you? And we're, we're about to have a revival on account of You know, the Macy's home goods department. God doesn't just keep his promises. He he does so with style. The kind of style that reveals the powerful scope of the concern that he has for his people. And so the first wave of exiles prepared to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. A wave of people that God specifically prompted to return. Prompted to return. And by the way, I'll I'll clarify here, this is, um, (laughs) you'll see it in just a minute. A wave of people that God specifically prompted to return. You can see that prompting language in verse 5, you know, God stirred up their spirits, and notice that it's the same language used to describe God's action upon King Cyrus. God's hands and God's power are overseeing every iota of what's happening. here. That's what I want you to notice. All of it. 
stirring up King Cyrus. He's stirring up the people who are leaving. He, his hands are on everything. Now, church, at this point, you're probably thinking, don't just tell me that some of these exiles return now. You know, I want names. Give me numbers. Give me places. I want all of the information. Well, I have some great news for you. That's exactly the kind of list that you find in Ezra chapter 2. So knock yourself out. Memorize it with the kids. But seriously, why the detail on this list? Why do we need to know that exactly 156 male descendants of Magvish returned to Jerusalem from exile? Here's why. And you'll have to excuse me because I need, I need to do a bit more preaching about the numbers. Every single one of those Israelites counted. In Ezra chapter 2, the average Joes, the Levites, the priests, the temple servants, every single one of them is a testimony to the mighty and gracious work of God in preserving an Israelite remnant. And it wasn't a, a dinky remnant. It was sizable. There were a lot of survivors. And it wasn't a homogenous remnant. It was diverse. It included exactly the mixture of people who were going to be needed to build the temple and manage the temple and oversee the worship and the sacrifices. To rightly understand the emotional impact of Ezra chapter 2, which in our eyes is surely the antithesis of emotional, think of it like a surprisingly large and diverse list of survivors after an airplane crash. When you, when you hear about that kind of tragedy, it's, it's a gut punch, and you understandably assume the worst. But if you then go and watch the news, and then you start to learn, actually, a lot of people survive including people from different families, you would get emotional. It might even be overwhelming. You might even call it a miracle. It's still a tragedy, but now it has a very different flavor. And so it is with Ezra chapter 2. A tragedy has occurred, although in, in this case it, it was intentional discipline for idolatry, but it's a tragedy nonetheless. But a whole lot of people have made it through and are preparing to return to Jerusalem. Ezra chapter 2, verses 3 through 7. The sons of Perosh, 2,172. The sons of Shephatiah, 372. The sons of Era, 775. The sons of Pehath-Moab, namely the sons of Jeshua and Joab, 2,812. The sons of Elam, 1,254. Glory be to God. Again, church, behold the generosity and the precision and the compassion of God in faithfully keeping His promises. I mean, things looked bleak for the Israelites in Babylon. They were uncomfortable. They were disoriented. They were dislocated. They were discouraged. But was God still sticking to his word and keeping his promises? Yes, abundantly so. And he was leading them home. What did this mean for the Israelites? 
What did this mean for the Israelites? Sure, the feelings of discomfort and dislocation were completely understandable and honestly unavoidable to some degree. But actually, discouragement was not unavoidable. They had reasons to be very hopeful, even as they experienced discomfort and dislocation. And they had very good reasons to move forward, fully trusting in the Lord and worshiping and enjoying Him regardless of their geography or their political climate. God had not abandoned His people and all of His promises remained intact. And again, remembering that the Israelites were in exile for idolatry, for false worship. God's promise-keeping nature was entirely a product of His grace. The Israelites themselves had nothing to do with it. Well, that's great for the Israelites. But what about us? I mean, we're not in Babylonian exile. And we're not under the authority of a Persian king. And we're not trying to send folks back to Jerusalem to build a temple. About that. Check out how Peter... I'm, I'm serious. This is ama- the Bible is amazing. Check out how Peter, as in one of Jesus' closest disciples, addresses primarily non-Jewish Christians in the letter called 1 Peter. This is 1 Peter chapter 1. To those who are elect exiles in the dispersion. And this is chapter 2. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Why the exilic language in that letter? Why? Because it turns out that Jesus' followers, then and now, are sojourning in a land that is not their true home. To borrow language from the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, he says, Our citizenship is in heaven, not here, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body, to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. And how does scripture refer to this this heaven where we have our citizenship? This heaven that we will one day inhabit when Christ returns. How does scripture talk about it? Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 2. Then I saw, this is John speaking, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. So church, we actually are exiles. We are spiritual exiles in the Babylon of this world, looking forward to our heavenly home in the New Jerusalem. You cannot make this stuff up. And who will lead us there? Jesus will lead us there. The Israelite exiles were led by Sheshbazar and Zerubbabel and later Ezra and Nehemiah. But when Jesus returns now, he himself will lead his bride, the church, out of exile and into the ultimate promised land. And he's the only one who can. He's the only one who can. 
because we're only getting in on account of Jesus' body broken for us and His blood shed for us on the cross and on account of His victorious resurrection from the dead. So that, that's what's coming. And in the meantime, what should we expect? What should we expect? Two things. Two expectations. And then we'll end. And I'm going to fly at 35,000 feet here since we'll spend more time unpacking these expectations throughout our Ezra and Nehemiah series. Expectation number one. We should expect regular experiences of discomfort and dislocation as we sojourn in this world. Too often, especially now, we blame those feelings on our immediate circumstances. You know, the the political climate, the moral fabric of our country, uh, which percentage of people go to church, etc., etc., etc. And when we think that way, we will be tempted to try to remedy our feelings of discomfort and dislocation through political engagement or trying to change certain laws or trying to make church more attractive so more people will, will come or show up on Sunday mornings. And then the more uncomfortable we get, the more we'll try to throw our weight around to change our immediate circumstances and then we'll either succeed in making these changes and become a, a rather domineering and insufferable lot of people or we will fail and become overwhelmingly discouraged and despairing. But as it turns out, Christians should expect to experience a certain amount of discomfort and dislocation regardless of our immediate circumstances, since this isn't our true home. It will always feel a bit off. And expecting that is spiritually healthy because it helps us endure difficulties, including possible persecution for following Jesus, and it protects us from putting our hope in things like political engagement, which are important in the right place. We're even talking about that tomorrow. But it protects us from putting our hope in things, like political engagement or whatever the case might be, rather than in Jesus. And it helps us long to be in heaven with Jesus rather than being excessively caught up with and affected by the now. And by the way, when Jesus' followers don't feel uncomfortable and dislocated, there is a strong chance that we are conforming our Christianity to the wisdom of the world rather than allowing ourselves to be transformed by God's word and the work of the Spirit. The Israelites shouldn't have felt completely comfortable in pagan Babylon. And nor should we feel completely comfortable in our time and place either. Should we be faithfully present and engaged? Yes, and we'll be talking about that. Comfortable? No. Expectation number two. We should expect to feel uncomfortable and and dislocate and all that, but here's expectation number two. God will keep his promises to his people which today includes every follower of Jesus across the globe. God will be faithful to his church. It will never be snuffed out. 
and our heavenly inheritance is secure. Our spiritual exile will end and we will come home. We need to hear those reminders these days, don't we? I mean, we always need to hear them. But a lot of Jesus' followers are feeling especially exilish right now. Consider Jesus' announcement to that same Peter guy we just talked about a moment ago. This is in Matthew 16, 18. On this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The gates of hell can do their best, but not even hell itself, not even the fully arrayed spiritual forces of evil will be able to take down Jesus' church. Because Jesus doesn't, doesn't lose stuff, you know? I mean, when he makes promises, in this case a, a new covenant with his people secured by his own blood, he keeps things like that. Things have gone a bit haywire this past year, haven't they? But here's the thing. The church of Jesus Christ remains even still. Jesus continues to sustain it and uphold it. And even if things get infinitely more haywire in the coming months and years, the church will endure. There might be casualties along the way. Just last week at the end of James, we talked about people wandering away from the faith. But the church will endure. I want to end with this story about, of all things, the BBC, the British Broadcasting Corporation. And you can find this story printed in an article from Alistair Begg called Welcome to Exile, It's Going to Be Okay. In the 1920s, Lord Reith helped to establish the British Broadcasting Corporation, and he served as its first director general. That's Lord Reith. And as the BBC began eventually to be carried along by the tide of secularism that swept through Britain in the 1960s, a young producer stood up in a meeting and he said to Lord Reith that the world was changing and that the BBC did not need to continue with its religious programming because nobody cared anymore. No one was interested in religion anymore. And the church was becoming increasingly obsolete. Lord Reith, by the way, was six foot six, told this young man to take a seat. And then he stood up and he said, The church will stand at the grave of the BBC. Church, God's going to keep his promises. He'll keep his promises when Christians are riding a wave of cultural favor, and he will keep his promises when Christians are being pounded by waves of cultural disapproval. There will be seasons of discomfort and dislocation some more severe than others. But we need not be discouraged or despairing. Instead, we can fully trust in the Lord and worship Him and enjoy Him. What will that look like in practice? Stay tuned. I can't wait to explore all this
in more detail in the coming weeks. Amen. Every week at City Church, we participate in the Lord's table together. It's an opportunity for the people of God to remember Christ crucified and raised and to remember that Christ is with us until the very end of the age. If you are a follower of Jesus, I mean, especially if you're a discouraged follower of Jesus, I hope that you eat and drink in remembrance and be encouraged for the Spirit would act upon you at this very moment. And since I'm assuming you're watching, you know, from home or maybe listening on iTunes, just use whatever you have available for communion that's closest to the bread and to the cup. The Lord understands completely the circumstances, and he will be pleased to have you participate with whatever you can bring. This is a meal for followers of Jesus, people that understand their sin and, and their need for a Savior. If you're listening or watching, or watching and, and you wouldn't say that you profess to follow Jesus, we're glad that you are watching or listening, we would encourage you to simply uh, reflect on what we've been talking about um, instead of participating in a meal that you wouldn't say that you believe in right now, you're still thinking about. And we would love to have conversations with you. Reach out to us, make yourself known. We would love to be uh, dialoguing with you. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was to be betrayed, shared a meal with his disciples, and during the meal he took the bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body given for you, broken for you. Do this whenever you eat of it in remembrance of me. And then in a similar manner, after the meal, Jesus took the cup, and as he poured it, he said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink of it in remembrance of me. And the Apostle Paul says, As often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes again. We are, we are remembering and rejoicing in the fact that we will not always be in spiritual exile, that we do have a true home and we will get there one day and live forever in the new Jerusalem in the presence of the Almighty God. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you so much for hope. <laughs> thank you that uh, it's not necessarily wrong that we might feel off uh, and uncomfortable and dislocated right now. I pray that we wouldn't be discouraged, though. That we would live with hope. And I pray that this meal would, would nourish us to that end. And Father, I also would ask that this would be a beautiful time, even a painful time, but a beautiful time nonetheless, of, of dealing with our sin. That you would expose things that we might bring them to you and freshly enjoy the grace of God in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
temptation deliver me from the evil one look out the window the birds are closing not a note is out of Should I worry? Why do I freak out?
keep singing, y'all. church family it's been great 
worshiping with you hear this benediction, then we can uh, sing the doxology together. This is from the book I was referencing earlier, 1 Peter. This is chapter 2. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Amen. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him. Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen. Go in peace.